Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome, everybody, to uh, Word in Your Ear at the Islington. Please, make your presence felt. (laughs) I'm David Hepworth. This is Mark Allen, and uh, a succession of guests are going to be joining us on this sofa over here throughout the evening. All with a kind of book link, really. I suppose we're going to, in a moment, we're going to hear from Richard Balls, who's written this very fine book about stiff records. Uh, later on, we're going to hear uh, about great lost albums, some you may own, some you may just have dreamed about. Uh, we're going to hear from Mark Billingham and Martin Waite. And in between, we're going to hear from uh, Mark Lewinson, uh, who knows more about the Beatles than the remaining Beatles do. It needed doing, and nobody's ever done it before, as far as I know. Uh, and, and the man who's done it is Richard Balls. It's the Stiff Record Story. Would you please welcome Richard Balls. Richard, are you there? <laughs> There you go, Richard. Take a seat. Take a mic. Okay. I will. Have you come far? Uh, from Norwich. 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 I suppose it's exciting for you, is it, being up in the... Yeah. Being, being in the smoke. <laughs> yeah, I've been pointing at aeroplanes and... <laughs> things. So, uh, just Point. come over here a bit. You might get I thought a bit, we could have a, a series of Alan Partridge jokes from <laughs> yeah. a bit. So, <laughs> yeah. so, Three centres of excellence, is it? Oxford, Cambridge and Norwich. <laughs> So what made, you, what made you pick the Stiff Record story? Well, I, I wrote a book about Ian Dury, uh, <coughs> a biography of Ian Dury, uh, which came out in 2000, so a really long time ago. Um, but that was one of the main reasons, really, writing about Ian. And, of course, he was a central figure at Stiff. And while I was writing that book, it occurred to me that, uh, that it was just an amazing story. But also, I think I was mentioning to you earlier on, uh, I worked as a journalist in Dublin uh, throughout the whole of the 90s, working for the Irish Times and, and all sorts of papers over there. Uh, and I remember working for Hot Press for, for a bit, and I did a, a piece about the 20th anniversary of Stiff Records. Um, and I was kind of freelancing at the time, and I remember sitting in this kind of Hot Press in Dublin. It was just off Dame Street, anyone who knows Dublin. And it's a very strange old building. It's basically an old house. 
And I remember sitting in this garret room at the top of the building and just ringing endless people who, were, who played a part in Stiff Records, either as artists or people who worked there. Uh, and again, at the time, thinking, this is just such an amazing story. I mean, my, my surprise really is that, uh, that I was the first person to do a book on Stiff because you'd think someone else would have, would have got there before me. But, hey, they didn't. So. But maybe you just picked the right moment. You've got to wait yeah. long enough with these things, haven't you, to, yeah. for the scars to have healed <laughs> and people to have forgiven people. Did you find generally people had forgiven people? I think so. I mean, uh, there's, there's, there's no love loss, I don't think, between Dave and, uh, Dave and Jake, but um, seeing as neither of them would talk to me anyway, uh, that didn't really apply. Right, but, um, OK. Uh, well, I think we you'd could... have to ask them why that is. Well, look, we're going we're gonna, to we're start with this. This is the, the high-quality visual I was talking about. This is a, probably a scan out of Music Week or something like that from 1976, I would imagine. And that's, uh, that's, that's Jake Rivera on, on the left, Dave Robinson on the right... And uh, Suzanne Spiro in between, yeah. and uh, now so, but the, the Dave and Jake were the kind of legendary couple that uh, that built the company. You know, how would you explain those two people and their <laughs> peculiar dynamic? Well, I think they've um, they've got a huge amount in common, and um, and then also very little in common in some ways. I think they were incredibly different. Um, Riviera is a very aggressive. Um, you know, physically and uh, verbally. Um, and he used to be a frightening figure. I mean, you know, stories about Jake pinning people to the wall and allegedly stuffing contracts down the toilet at Island Records, jumping on desks in there when they were dealing with Elvis Costello. Uh, there was a huge impasse at one point uh, because Ireland and Stiff basically fell out and there was a whole period where Stiff didn't uh, put any records out. Um, so Riviera was a really um, frightening person. Um, Dave, Dave Robinson was also very, very forthright, uh, very pushy. I think they were both very driven, um, but a very, he was a bit more of an, I don't know, a bit more of a laid-back kind of character. He was from Dublin, um, but both of them had come out of the pub rock scene and had done, had basically trodden the same ground, really, because Dave had uh, managed uh, Kilwin and the High Roads uh, for his sins uh, at one point, so he knew Ian Jury really well. Um, he'd also managed Brincey Schwartz, so he knew Nick Lowe. He, he was managing Graham Parker at the time because Advancedale was the management arm uh, stiff uh, at the time. And, uh, and Dave, uh, sorry, and Jake had been involved in Dr. Feelgood, um, the Naughty Rhythms Tour. The brilliantly named... Naughty, I was there. <laughs> Naughty Rhythm Store, 1975, which is uh, Chili, Chili Willie and the Red El Peppers, um, Kokomo, and uh, Dr. Feelgood. And really, in a way, that was the precursor to the stiff, live stiff store, the very first one. Sorry, I'm probably and jumping ahead. they were ahead. never really part of the, the kind of major music industry world, were they? Because cause it's, it's what's fascinating about this. This is a fantastic book, by the way. It's not just the artists and the music they're making, but everything about the record company is so revolutionary. You know, they were the, the marketing, yeah. the sloganeering, the, the value for money of the, of the product, you know. And I just wondered what, was, what had driven those two to take such an attitude because they were trying to topple a world yeah. full of the great cliche <coughs> dinosaurs. And, yeah. and there's a bit, in fact, your book where, where, where you say what a brilliant uh, A&R Jake is because the reason is he goes out to gigs every night. They were basically furious. That their blood was boiling at the way that the music industry was being run. I mean, they had spent every single night, as you say, they were music fans. That's what, that's what set Stiff Records apart from other labels, is that other labels weren't being run by music fans, you know, music freaks. They might be running, you know, run by people with a passing interest in music, but music had ceased to become the main purpose of those other labels. So really, I think, 
you know, they, they were basically frustrated because they, they were going down places like the Nashville and the Hope and Anchor and the Red Cow and all these places and seeing the likes of Graham Parker, Nick Lowe, Elvis Costello, Ian Jury performing in front of sometimes handfuls of people in, in shitty little, you know, pub back yeah, rooms. Thinking, why so, aren't people, not, why, not, why isn't there a wider not, audience? Not that we're not sitting in a shitty pub back room, but... Uh, <laughs> but present company accepted. <laughs> this is lovely, absolutely lovely place. And I'm sure no pub... Norwich. Ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You, we're the UNESCO City of Literature. And <laughs> somebody, somebody recently pointed out, a couple of comedians from Norwich recently pointed out, we actually burnt down our first library. <laughs> so uh, maybe, maybe we're not very... <laughs> I just, I just, I want to pick up one point about, about the kind of the violence, actually, because I think it's quite interesting that Jake was... Physically intimidating, although not a tall man at all. Dave, more laconic, but used to walk around the stiff office <clears throat> with a baseball bat. Yeah. Laconically, yeah. you know, slapping the other hand yeah. with it. Well, Reckless Eric says the first time he saw Dave in stiff offices at 32 Alexander Street, he walked in and was swinging a, a golf club around his head. <laughs> and, uh, and there was not a lot of room in that no, office to... It's also an interesting reminder of the, ti- uh, the fact that at the time, you know, live music was quite a violent business. Yeah. Going to gigs was a dangerous yeah, business. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, the sort of people fights all the time. The sort of people who uh, who were involved in the music uh, industry at the time are the kind of people who would never be associated with it now. I mean, yeah. one of the people uh, that Jake had a <laughs> one of the things in the book. Um, is uh, a fight between Jake Riviera. I would say a fight. It takes two people to have a fight. It's probably half a fight. Um, Jake Riviera was in Dingwalls, and uh, he sees a guy called Knocker Knowles. Oh. <laughs> Who features very heavily in your book. It <clears throat> does yeah. feature quite heavily in the yeah. book. And um, Knocker Knowles, kind of the name, you don't need to know anymore. There's a clue in the title. Sort of, <laughs> you, you kind of know this isn't the sort of person uh, that, you, you know, you, the sort of person you need to be careful of. So, Knocker, Knocker if you're listening to this, by the way, we don't yeah. mean any harm <clears throat> at all. No, 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 absolutely. And um, so basically, Knocker Knowles was working for Island Records, and he was a rogue. I mean, he was a really fearsome guy. I think he'd been a boxer or something, I don't know. But anyway, Knocker Knowles, his reputation went before him, I think, uh, Jake spots him in Dingwalls and basically was pissed off because he, as, as he saw it, that the island weren't doing enough around the damned. They weren't, you know, hadn't, hadn't got, had a hit record. So he basically pours an entire pint of beer all over Knocker Knoll's head in Dingwalls and then uh, basically just punches Jake's lights out. And I think Jake apparently tried to sue Dingwalls for the crowns he had to have fitted afterwards. Different apparently. times. Different yeah. times. Yeah. Don't think there's many Knocker Knolls in the music industry in 2014. <laughs> So this is the, fir- the famous first record, wasn't it? Yeah. The, fir- the first yeah. stiff record, uh, stiff release, So It Goes, 1976. Um, and a wonderful example of uh, classic uh, stiff sloganeering up there on the left, mono-enhanced stereo. <laughs> Electrically recorded yeah. as well. Electrically, Electrically recorded, yeah. Electrically <laughs> recorded. You know, it was, kind of, it was interesting that it was all a kind of... Uh, uh, Homage, as they as they would say, to the kind of classic record companies, wasn't it? Albeit with a kind of yeah. a bit of a twist to it. I think you know, Dave and Jake were very um, aware of music history. I mean, like I've already said, they were music freaks. They were music fans, and they were very aware of the history of music, um, which is and they kind of borrowed from the best. So you know, when we talk about the tours. You know, we'll talk about the Motown. I mean, for me, Stiff is like a kind of hooligan's answer to Motown. 
It's basically a bunch of pissed up hooligans. It's a drunk Motown. It's just like a, yeah, I, like, I mean, I think Dave Quantic in his Q review actually says like a pissed Motown, but I mean, I, I did draw a comparison with Motown in the book for various reasons. One is that Dave and Jack were very, um, they pr- really prized very highly songwriting. You know, they were, it wasn't just people who, who, who could write, who could play great songs and look weird, uh, and all, because obviously looking weird was absolutely essential criteria. But writing great songs, Graham Parker, Nick Lowe, Elvis Costello, you know, Ian Dury, it's no, it's no coincidence that they spotted the, those people. Um, and, in, and in many ways, the way that Motan operated, very small little premises... Uh, that everyone loves a little story about a little tiny place and the studio that they had, Pathway Studio, which is not that far from here, which is where they recorded the first few. Um, I mean, you could probably fit Pathway in here about ten times, you know. Um, so it was an absolutely bizarre. Uh, it was like a hooligans. Brilliantly moment. good. They had, a, they had a house band. They had a house producer. They had a house yeah. marketing person. They had uh, yeah. a house sloganeer writers. And but them. you would never. See, what were the slogans? We come to the. Slogans. Oh, you said. Mo- oh, okay. It, Motown never had a picture taken like that, did they? <laughs> kind of key producer and, uh, and you know, they're kind of... The four tops there. Rossed of dust. This is outside the office in, in Alexander Street in, uh, in Bayswater. And, uh, you know, it, it's so strange, isn't it, that Nick Lowe ended up with, you know, producing The Damned, you know, because they seemed... To, they were only separated by a few years... But it, it was an enormous gulf in those days, wasn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, mean, how did that work? I don't know, really. I mean, I think um, Stiff realised that, um, that Nick was a... I mean, Nick was a great friend of Jake's. Uh, they were very, very big friends. And, um, yeah, I mean, punk kind of came along at exactly the same time. Um, I mean, whether Stiff, you know, was, whether that was a concerted thing on Stiff's part to coincide those two things, I don't know. But I think the Damned, in particular, were a pretty unruly bunch and... They realised that they needed uh, some policing, and Nick was very good at that. And I think Nick was very good at being, you know, getting it. Well, we'll do it. Get the yeah, in quicker. Like down at the Weaver's Arms, back in again. Maybe down at the Weaver's Arms a couple more times. But he actually, you know, they needed somebody because basically they were a bunch of kids. They needed somebody to to look after them and to get the best out of them. And what Nick was really great at was getting the best out of people. So whole wide world, new rows, all those kind of records, which are kind of so. I don't know, they're so basic in, in, a, in, a, in a brilliant way. That was Nick that, that got all that out of them. And also, in their case, he used to speed up the tape, didn't he? Did he speed, yeah. actually, did he speed up the tape? He did, didn't he? Dave Robinson was, was apparently, yeah, a lot of them later on, they would deliberately record things slowly, knowing, yeah. that, knowing that he would speed it up. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, that's you re- up. record at 33, yeah. publish at 45. <laughs> that's a really good <laughs> idea. 45. That's, that's brilliant. That so, was the first punk... So here we are, the, slogan. Uh, the, the, the classic. Slogan. I used to have a T-shirt with us on. It, yeah. it expired in the wash in the late 70s. I did mean. you ever wear it on public transport? No, you wouldn't have dared. <laughs> People you would not have dared. You'd have started a fight at the time. But that, that was the kind of classic. Let, you know, let's recall a few of the others. What were the others? I can remember, was the reversing into tomorrow? Was That was one of them. Yeah. The world's most flexible. We've got the great Andy Murray over there who actually worked at Stiff, so he'll probably remember some. Huh. Uh, d- downstairs to debasement. So the, this is this is the, the this is kind of Diana Ross, Marvin Gaye, Smokey Robinson, yeah. and, uh, you know, definitely the, yeah. the, 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 the you know the, the fabulous five upon whom the the company was founded. Reading from the left, uh, Reckless Eric. Yeah, Reckless Eric. 
an extraordinary character now. Incredible. Yeah. That. Well, I mean, he, I mean, I've met him many times because uh, the first time I uh, interviewed him was over a plate of fish and chips on Brighton Pier when I was writing the book for about Ian Jury. And um, yeah, I mean, he's he's just an extraordinary, uh, an absolutely extraordinary character. Um, this time around, he came to my uh, house uh, in Norwich because he used to live in uh, in Norwich for a while. Bizarrely, just returning to the theme of Norwich again. Why is it bizarre that reckless Eric should live in Norwich? <laughs> reckless, reckless could turn up anywhere, really, couldn't yeah. he? Yeah, would he turn up at the opening of Norwich? Has he left I mean, your house yet? Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. And I did, it got to about two o'clock in the morning. I did actually have to say, I actually do have to go to work tomorrow. So, you know, I think we're going to watch, we're gonna have to wind this More up. More than but, yeah. Yeah. but just uh, let me just stop you on Because the bit in the book where Reckless turned up at the stiff office with a little plastic carrier bag full of cassettes. Yeah. I mean, it just seems absolutely unimaginable. Left and said, would someone like to listen to this? Within two hours, someone had listened to it, or maybe it was Jake who played yeah. it to Nick, and then they, he didn't even leave his telephone number. They managed to get a hold of him. They got him back. And within about, I mean, literally weeks, they had put a backing band around him, they'd recorded, gone to Pathway, and he had a record out. Yeah. I mean, it, it yeah. just seems absolutely astonishing. I mean, Eric, actually, and what do you think they saw in him? Because he was a massive failure, wasn't he, really? He, he, he was a huge fan. Sorry, he was. He was, he, they, he was the stiff. The, he was the, the stiff. Ultimate. Thank you. It's uh, very unkind to say. He that, embodied the brand values of the label. There's, a lovely, the label. there's a lovely bit in the, in the, in the book where they, they, they put out a record. They used to put out these kind of comedy novelty records later on, uh, Stiff. And one of them was called The Wit and Wisdom of Ronald Reagan, which amazingly sold 20,000 copies. It was blank on both sides. I was silent. <laughs> that was the hilarious gag. And, uh, and as Dave Robertson used to say directly, he said, We sell more copies of a silent record. Than we do of yours, reckless. Do better. So you know why? 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 Why do they see so much in him? God bless him. I think him. because he because he did epitomise. I mean, he, he was uh, stiff records uh, embodied. He, he was a kind of uh, weird, you know, very very tiny urchin like figure with a, a really whiny, horrible whiny voice. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're really selling it to me, there. Eric. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm Eric. And uh, you know, even when he speaks, it's it's it, it's like something you know I've been drag down a radiator or something, you know. It's, and he'd he, he turn up, and literally, I mean, he turned up, and I think he'd even remembered what he had on the cassette, the tape you're talking about. He had recorded something like Eric Clapton live on it, or Eric Clapton's greatest hits, and he had to rub over that. Recorded over that. To get, yeah. That's so stiff. And that's so stiff, yes. Yeah, so rec- I think he didn't want Stiff to know that he, yeah. that he liked Eric Clapton, so he sort of deliberately taped over that bit and had to sit in his bedroom in, in silence, I think. Yeah. You know, the way you'd have to, in order to wipe the. the <laughs> no, <it's laughs> you had to record you nothing do. for 45 Keeping minutes. Keeping absolutely quiet. Yeah. And then so he actually, he actually recorded these tracks that he took to his demo, was basically him sitting in his bedroom playing his guitar. <laughs> Put these tracks on. Might have then actually then sat there in silence, so they didn't know he liked Eric Clapton or whatever it was. Then basically, because he was very shy and he said, oh, "I don't really know anyone in London," and all this, he went down. It's very good. Though. Just how he talked. I've listened to him for a bit too yeah, long. I think. He's still in your it's house. A bit too good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So um, and then he basically gets really pissed because he, you know, he has too many for Dutch courage. Staggers in the door, sort of literally bowls in the door. Bangs into this huge, big mountain of a, of a bloke, looks up and th- you know is a bit sort of terrified. Hands his tape over and basically runs away. Um, the, the, this mountain of a bloke that he hands the tape over to turns out to be um, Huey Lewis. <laughs> 
<laughs> randomly. Because... Although, to be so, fair, he wasn't Huey Lewis then, was he? He was a member no, of Clover actually, or whatever. And I've just said he was a mountain of a bloke and that Eric was looking up at him, and that doesn't really work either. <laughs> I think Huey Lewis is probably only about five foot four, yeah. six. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he, he was... Uh, Clover were basically kicking their heels around because Dave and Jake uh, managed Clover on the Advanced Dale label. And I think in, well, they'd, they'd rather hope that this American bunch would turn up in London and they would be this huge success because everyone loves men in long, with long hair and bell bottoms in 1975. And actually, Clover didn't really do anything at all. So they were just basically you know, shooting the shit, basically. He didn't have anything to do. And um, so he hands his tape to Huey Lewis, who then I think says, oh, we this weird guy just came in. You know, tape. Jake puts it on his whole wide world, and then they're trying to run down the street after. Where's he gone? You know, he's disappeared. So Eric like, thinks he's been pursued. We should we talk about Elvis in the middle there. Uh, we talked a bit about Nick before, but Elvis is cello. Again, it's another extraordinary story, isn't it? Because he had a... Now, in the, in the world of, of the internet, you would have found out very quickly, uh, sounds would have discovered that he, in fact, worked as a kind of slightly geeky computer operative for... Was it in a, in a, yeah. a, a company uh, making... Um, Elizabeth Arden. Elizabeth Arden, Elizabeth yeah. Arden, that's right, yeah. yeah. But he completely reinvented himself. They, yeah. they gave him a new name. And yeah, yeah. Skinny guy. And they made him wear the glasses. I mean, tell yeah, us about that. There was, about there that was a guy... Um, um, oh, God. So, uh, there was a guy... One of the people I interviewed... I can't, sorry, the name's just gone for a second. But he was saying about Elvis that... Um, when when he recorded My Aim Is True, that uh, he had to sort of they were they were girls ringing up from the from the cosmetics factory in West London where where Elvis had been had been working, and they were saying we know all about him, we know his whole backstory, we we know that he's really Declan McManus, the the guy, the weird geeky weird guy who kind of sits with the, the computer all day. We know it's him. We're going to go to the papers and tell them that he's his winner. And how did they convince them not to go? To he them? just sent them loads of copies of My Aim Is True for nothing. <laughs> and they, that's obviously very easily, very easily bought out. Yeah. But it is incredible to think now that, I mean, it's very easy you know, for all of us to say, oh, well, he would have been, he would have been big anyway. And even if Stiff hadn't come along, Elvis Costello, come on. No, but well, just for yeah, a brief he, period, you need that, that magic where people will yeah. believe. And actually, and he, and he hadn't. And the thing was, he hadn't. You know, the, other, the other labels, like Ian Dury, the other labels hadn't taken him on. It may be that he would have been uh, huge without Stiff. But the fact is that no one had taken him on. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's another lovely story where Elvis... Went play outside with the CBS Records, was it? Just bust, yeah, yeah, bust on the street his, yeah. his songs. Well, that's his classic orders. Jake. You know, it that. was fabulous, and it really had an effect, didn't it? Because in fact, it helped yeah. get a, a, a distribution deal later on for Stiff. Yeah. So yeah. going round, and then now, not everybody went on to fame and fortune. <laughs> uh, Larry Wallace here was uh, the kind of representative of, of a strand of Dave and Jake's past, wasn't it? Mm. That kind of... Psychedelic kind of... I past. saw him. In 1972, I saw him at a rock festival. He was in the Pink Fairies, wasn't he? Isn't that yeah. the guy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that was probably pretty much his peak, actually. Mad, <laughs> mad, mad hair and aviator shades, and um, I mean, he had this brilliant record called Police Car, which I still think is one of probably yeah, one of the, right. one of one of the, one of the best singles put out on Stiff. Um, but um, I think I think he says in the book that that's, that song has actually had a bigger career than he has, really. Um, yeah. You know, and um, he he kind of. Um, yeah, I mean, in a way, it's, it's funny because with, with Stiff, you know, you obviously hear people saying, well, Stiff, we needed Stiff because it, we needed it to blow away prog rock and we needed it because all these psychedelic bands and all these things. Well, actually, a lot of the people who um, came into Stiff right at the beginning and throughout the whole time of the label were involved. I mean, Dave Stewart, by the way, not, it isn't, by the way, the Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics, okay? No, no. The Dave Stewart and Barbara Gaskin, who had the hit with It's My Party and... Uh, he had another few hits with Stiff as well. What becomes of the Broken Hearted? That's not the Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics. Dave Stewart uh, in that instance is Dave Stewart who was in Egg 
and Hatfield and the North and many other. I mean, you don't get much no, more absolutely. Not very prog than no that. No less punk. So, no. It, and in the same way, Larry Wallace, you know, he was, he was definitely not involved in that, you know, sort of punk scene and stuff. He was involved in the sort of Pink Fairies, you know. So this lot went on tour together, didn't they? You know, with the idea, yeah. again, like Motown, that, you know, everybody will go out and do three songs or whatever. Did they get on in, like, a house on fire? <laughs> <laughs> was, the, was the brotherly love, you know... Flowing. Well, they didn't really... Um, I think the blockheads were basically... They just basically sat on the back of the bus and toked away. I mean, they were just basically, you know, they just wanted to smoke weed and they'd been in Loving Awareness. Do you know what I mean? Been, yeah, yeah. If you've been in a band called Loving Awareness, you're not going to have that many fights with other people, probably. So um, so they they were basically... And also, they sort of... They'd been they'd knocked around. I mean, Mickey, Mickey, Mickey Gallagher from the Blockers had been with the animals. You know, he'd been, he'd, he'd been with all sorts of people. So they had, whereas some of these others were a bit younger and a little bit greener, they came into it and, yeah, yeah, we're doing our thing, you know. The, the attractions and Elvis, they were completely pumped up. And Ian was completely pumped up. And what also didn't help... Well, the well, and also, and he was, And obviously Eric was pissed up. So, you know, I mean, Eric was literally just absolutely pissed up every night. And in fact, at one point in the tour, he had to go home to his mum. I was mom. on one of these tours. I remember Eric used to have a guy, I'm not exaggerating, used to be, his job was to put him to bed. Andy will probably help you out here. <laughs> Am I right? This guy used to take him up and put him to bed at three o'clock in the morning. And we all sighed, a sigh of relief as the lift door shut and, and uh, Reckless disappeared. About three minutes later, the doors banged open and out stumbled, fell Reckless, crawling back to the bar. We said, what are you doing? He said, I got into bed. He said, nothing was spinning. So I realised I hadn't done the job properly. So I thought, I thought, Christ almighty. And that's what they had to deal with every day. No, but the thing, just sorry, just one more point about the competition. It's just, it's so funny because the, the, the tour started with um, a kind of revolving headliner, wasn't it? it was Costello in the attractions one night, Ian and the Blockheads the next night. And then there's this terrible tension about which one's going to, and eventually it's, it's, in fact, the Blockheads, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We're getting more applause. Yeah. I mean, it was a huge, so, um, I mean, uh, sorry, that, that was inevitable that Ian versus Elvis. And, yeah. and in fact, that was a brilliant thing. I mean, you know, from a stiff point of view, that was fantastic that the two of them were kind of at loggerheads. Um, and also another thing... Wasn't also brilliant engineering by, by, by Jake, in a way, to kind of... Oh, I mean, absolutely. Such competition, you know, they, best they, performance. They loved that. I mean, it was never going to come to blows because obviously um, Ian had um, Fred... Fred Spider wrote. Oh my God! Know, yeah. he, so it was ne- I know he was never going to get punched. Oh dear. But Fred wrote. Um, he's an incredible uh, sort of villain, basically. Uh, in his own <laughs> mental flashback. Do you remember? Yeah. Spider. Knocking Elves Spider Road. Just come back. So the right, I mean, I interviewed him. Interviewed him for this. Again, book. Spider, if you're listening, yeah, if you're listening, guy. <laughs> absolutely loves his mother. Sweetheart. Nothing libelous is going to be said here. But um, yeah, I mean, I think Stiff Stiff had these people representing. Uh, Elvis, so they like, and Ian, so like BP Fallon comes into the picture. You've got other people in yes. the corner, and you had it's like a boxing match. You had not only Elvis and Ian, but you had these other people representing them in their yes, corners, all fighting in their own corners. So that's the you know combustible cocktail that was the first stiff tour. Um, this is the group who probably changed the label more than anything. Madness. How did they come to be there? Um, they played at Dave Robinson's wedding. <laughs> That's how they came to <laughs> Basically, Dave Robinson, I think, had been in Australia uh, with mm, Graham Parker. Thank you, Andy. Uh, with Graham Parker. And I think he'd been in America with uh, LA with a, Rachel Sweet or something. Anyway, he was abroad representing the interests of the stiff you know, uh, artists. Uh, he'd heard about this, this group Madness is back home. People saying, oh, you got to hear them. Paul Conroy knew them. 
he, he couldn't audition them, so he, not, without telling Rosemary, his uh, wife-to-be, he just said, they can come and play at my wedding. So can you imagine saying that to your wife-to-be? <laughs> yeah, by so the way... I've got a group I, coming. I'm, it I'm could so easily have been Larry Wallace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> did, did she ever dodge a bullet? You know what I mean? We got madness, the most entertaining, middle-of-the-road, you know, pop phenomenon of the age. Rather than just yeah. about anybody and what, else. What's even better is Madness were third on the bill out of three. Because <laughs> they were the second on the bill were the inmates who were then on. Oh, top. Sorry. Yeah, the inmates. It was, it was Madness opened the show. Then it was the Stiff All Stars, Stiff All Stars, named very, uh, you know, intentionally. And then it was and the, the inmates. inmates yeah. And what was great about us being at the Stiff All Stars, playing our first and pretty much only gig was that everyone fucked off after we came off. So the inmates played to nobody. It was a great moment. And then we got a record deal out of it as well. So yeah. Madness have not just one hit, not two, not five. It just goes on yeah, yeah. forever. And also it? Dave Robertson had to really fight off a lot of competition because unlike a lot of the acts that came to Stiff, they actually had had a hit record. I mean, that's probably, in a sense, that makes, that makes Madness kind of what the odd one out in that sense. They'd had a, a, a hit on two-tone uh, with The Prince. So by the time they'd actually or doing this audition at the wedding. They had actually had a hit, a hit record. And um, so when Dave basically locked them in a room, which apparently is what he did to, to make sure that they didn't sign for anybody else and wouldn't let them out until they'd signed, uh, well, he sort of stood on their hands. Um, and, and he offered them not, next to nothing. It was, it was a t- tiny amount of money. But uh, Madness just realised that this was, the, you know, this was the perfect fit, basically. And uh, he signed them up, and that was, yeah... It's but crazy also that Dave Robinson, not only did he produce some of these records and run the record company and all the financial side of it and write the slogans and be involved in the marketing, but he, does anyone remember Baggy Trousers, the video? I'm sure you do. With the, is it with the one with the piano? And the, that, incredible. Yeah. And he directed. This yeah, guy yeah, who yeah, presumably uh, never made films, directed those Yeah, I, and Nigel Dick. And um, made uh, those records huge hits on top yeah. of the pops. Well, Nigel Dick, who was a press officer and, and a friend of, of Andy's and was in the uh, Stiff All-Stars with him, um, Nigel Dick um, started doing his uh, video. That's where he kind of cut his teeth um, filming videos for Stiff. And he's now like... Uh, you he know, to do Guns N' Roses and... Guns uh, N' Roses, Britney Spears, Britney the Spears. Live Aid video, yeah. only small things like that. So my, my claim to fame was, and I was there when they filmed the video for... Um, the Return of the Last Palmer Seven, oh, yeah. the, the instrumental. It was above it. it was, I remember being in Queensway or somewhere. It was above a, a cafe or something. And the climax of the video was that Lee Thompson had to jump into a bowl of salad. <laughs> God knows how, but he, he somehow did it, you know. And it, you know, there was no special effects. There was no, they didn't fix it in Lots post. Of training. You know what yeah, I mean? Right. You've got to jump in the bowl of Health salad. safety operatives. You know, extra, I mean, when you think about it, it is an extraordinary career. The yeah. career of madness. So, but presumably their success very quickly made them bigger than the label. Yeah, and also, I mean, madness effectively, because it was so big for so long. One of um, one of Stiff's real problems going into the in towards the, the end of the story is that it never really had two big artists. Uh, big selling artists on the label at the same time. It had Madness and then someone would have a hit and then it would kind of dry up again and then someone else had it. But it never really had two or three big acts at the same time having hits, which is what it really needed. And so in a way, Madness actually allowed Stiff to put out a lot of shit, basically. (laughs) 
They did put out some shocking records. Yeah. <laughs> they put out a record by Annie uh, Nightingale's husband, Binky Baker. B- yeah, Binky Baker. Called Tony Blackburn. Do you remember that? Those were the only Tony Blackburn. That really, I can hear the bottom of a barrel being vigorously scraped. Often between Madness singles, there would be another 15 singles, but none of which would be hits. And then a Madness would have it, and then it'd be a hit, and there'd be another 15 records that wouldn't do anything, and then another Madness hit. And that's the problem of a small label, isn't it? Yep. You just, you've, you've got to keep you know, growing your success all the time, haven't you? Yeah, and I think you know, when, the, when the label became bigger and obviously you had bigger offices and a bigger rent to pay and you had more mouths to feed and you had more secretaries and more A&R and so on, then, of course, the, the need for commercial success gets bigger and bigger. So basically what you're saying is small independent labels don't work? Uh, they do for a while. Okay. Yeah, they do long enough for, for people to make their reputation and, and go off somewhere else. But, uh, you know, you yeah. can't keep one going as it's a going. Re- it's concern. really interesting. I've been doing a lot of interviews, uh, radio interviews, in the last few weeks uh, about this. And it's re- it's re- what really strikes me is that um, people ringing into the programmes or the people playing the records, um, it's almost as if um, Stiff only existed for like a year in people's memories. You know, but most people, if you actually say, if I said to most people in this room, name your your favourite stiff records, I guarantee you that most of them will have been in a period of no more than two years. And some people have almost said to me, like, did, did it carry on after Jake? Did it do much after Jake went? What, yeah, another ten years out of the eleven that it actually ran for. this is just the bit for. that everyone remembers. So the, I mean, I yeah. was at New Musical Express when this was going on. This was the most exciting thing on the block. And, I, and what I didn't know at the time was, in fact, the idea of, of taking a help, they took the entire rolling stock on a train, which is in fact based on an idea, I think, either of the Grateful Dead's tour. Grateful Dead apparently went on a train. Oh, yes, the Grateful So again, punk rock, so the Grateful Dead's idea is brought. But nobody fondly remembers the Mickey Jump album, which was called (laughs) Japanese. And and to illustrate the concept on the cover, it featured Mickey Jump actually, well, I won't even do it, but, you know, pulling his eyes into a kind of, you know... Different times. Racially sensitive joke. Only members of the royal family bought copies of that <laughs> <laughs> prince philip's got two so, so this, you know by then you know there's rachel sweet come along oh, there's still hits like jonah louis you know but they're they're kind of you know they're they're they're, they're occasional uh, this was actually stiff's last hurrah wasn't it yeah strangely enough yeah, yeah, who's this well, I mean, yeah, the Dubliners, I suppose, uh, Shane McGowan, I know, was, was hugely influenced by them. I mean, uh, Shane, who I interviewed for the book, was actually fantastic. I mean, great, you know, great copy as usual, you know. And um, he did manage to lock, lock himself in the toilet, by the way, while I was interviewing him, which I, I'm sure that's not the first person that uh, that's happened. He's developing some skills, I'm anyway. sure that's I'm not the first, but, you know, it was, still, it was... Uh, an incident, and um, but yeah, I mean, well, I know that he was really uh, influenced by the Dubliners because they they almost had that kind of certainly on the Irish music scene they had almost that punk attitude. If there was an Irish band that had punk attitude, it was it was the Dubliners, basically like seven seven drunken nights. Um, so yeah, I mean, in a sense, for me, the Pogues. Uh, were one of the only acts from the later part of Stiff that seemed to have some kind of affinity with the earlier acts. Of, uh, you know, that was, they were almost the, t- the thing that tied up the whole thing. Um, and you could still see that kind of rebellious side of, of, of Stiff, bringing in these people from the cold that you think, you know, very few people, other people would have, would have touched with a barge bowl. Um, and it, it seems fitting in a way that this was one of the last ones. Unfortunately, uh, it just a bit came a bit too late because by that time there were so many creditors banging on the door. Uh, and, you know, I mean, by the time Stiff went under, I mean, it was about three and a half million pounds of debts, which, you know, we might, I mean, now, 2014, doesn't, doesn't maybe sound that much. That was a hell of a lot of money yeah, in 1987. Yeah, you know. yeah. And uh, obviously showing very high standards of sartorial presentation and uh, 
you know, understanding the import of the incasion, aren't they? Hands in pockets, though. <laughs> so, so that's the, the stiff story, and an extraordinary and, uh, and, and cautionary tale it is for all of it's us. A cautionary tale. Well, <laughs> what's, what's your next project? Have you got... Uh, I Any, got, anything else no, on the stocks? Not, not for the moment. Given that I spent 15 years between these two projects, it probably, uh, it probably won't be too soon before I do, do another one. But I, I mean, I, I would very much love to do another book, yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming along and talking about it. You're very well. uh, we should book- say that Richard's copies of this oh, book yeah. are outside. And, and I just noticed something brilliant about them, actually. Very much in the, in the style, the grand tradition of Barney Bubbles, the, the designer. I think this book is in five different colour editions, yeah. isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, actually, I mean, technically six, because what we did was um, just to tell the story very quickly the Beast Stiff tour uh, Stiff did something which made Reckless Eric absolutely furious Andy something uh, else me the time. <laughs> yeah something yeah they breathed in and out um, basically um, they, put, they put five albums out on the same day by those five artists Rachel Sweet Jonah and so on Mickey Chup um, and they were green red yellow or uh, white and blue so basically we, we decided that for the first thousand of uh, copies of this in a kind of nod to Stiff's um, creativity and, and sort of you know, eye, eye for a quick buck. We would basically put the, the book out in five different colours, and then of course we would delete those out, and uh, the, the, all books after that would be in black. So we have actually already had quite a few collectors, stiff collectors, buy all five. All five. <laughs> Fantastic. And, They're uh, still out there, aren't they? And presumably they'll buy the black one because they won't have that either. So. <laughs> Well, it's good to know that uh, such patrons still exist, isn't it? (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Balls. Thank you. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. I'm a a bit of a Beatles bore. Mark is a huge Beatles bore. But we both of us completely put together and cubed many times over. Don't know anything like as much... As our next... I you going to say, aren't as boring as... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd thought about that. Uh, aren't anything like as expert as our next guest. Well, I've got to call him the world's greatest Beatles expert. He because he is. he is. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Lewis. Hello, David. Hello, Mark. <laughs> so here we are. And uh, we, we, we spoke at a Word in Your Ear uh, event, I don't know, a year ago or something like that, when, you, when, you, yeah, when the was, first um, volume of your book came out, Gone. It, it was the eve of publication day. It was a special night for me. It was the start of a whirlwind tour. <laughs> so uh, I always remember that night with great fondness. And yes. I think when I've, I've spoken to you since, I've actually I've said to you, taken you in a corner and said, Mark, will I live to read volume three <clears throat> of your book? And I'm sure there may be other people in this yeah. room who are thinking the same thing. Yeah. Uh, so what's, what's the basic time plan? You published part one mm-hmm. a year ago, something like that? Yes, part one came out in 2013. Um, yeah, uh, October last year. So I've had a year and two months of working on this one uh, without the encumbrance of volume one. I was actually doing a little bit of volume two work whilst doing volume one, but now obviously it's my sole focus. Uh, and the time frame is um, a long one. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to seven say. Seven years? Is that was seven years? Yeah, well, the first one took ten, and I'm trying to do this one in seven. Um, although... So the second volume is not going to come out for seven years? Yes, I'm saying 2020. 
Um, the publishers are expecting it in 2020. So, or and expecting the, so, it which out makes in the third volume what? 27? About 2027, 2028, something oh, like that. On. Yeah, yeah. So, um, will you be here? Oh. You tell me. Have your publishers taken out insurance on you, Rhonda? Actually, yes. I thought they were. Yeah, Seriously? they really, they really have. Yeah, it was my idea um, because they, you know, I was one of the. I'm, I'm a very lucky author in that I got. One of the last good deals before the recession. There it is. There it is. He looks away. I got one of the last good deals before the recession kicked in and before publishing changed. So I'm a big red line on my publisher's balance sheet, but they're they're hanging in there because the first one did really well and because they believe in what it is, you know. Have they got a reserve lined up in case you turn your toes up on volume three? I mean, seriously. Yeah, uh, as far as I know, no, no, I don't think they have. I keep thinking of who it might be if I do, you know, suffer the unmentionable. Um, I think we should be bothered about this. Yeah. Not that you don't look in the pink of health, but but where where are all your notes? I'm only half the man I used to be. Um, I'm I'm in my late 50s now. I I do wish I'd started it a bit earlier, but, you know, as as a human being, I wasn't ready to do it any earlier than I started it, you know? So... It is Are a fantastically detailed book. We ought to say that... Uh, it, uh, how many people here have read Volume 1 of this? It's, it's fantastic, isn't it? I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but I was, I was just telling her, actually, that uh, um, uh, on page 820, yeah. the Beatles released their first record. <laughs> I just want to make absolutely clear, this is an extremely detailed and deep-end experience. Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, don't spoil this by telling what the ending's going to be. I won't tell you what happens (laughs) next. (laughs) Wait till 2027. And also, the 820-page version is only half the length of the long version. There's the unedited version. There's the the book that's everything I wrote, which is uh, 1,728 pages, and it goes up to the end of 1962. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's doing really well, according to your publisher. It's, it's doing... done extremely well. It's sold out twice, and it's doing well to almost selling out a third run. Um, oh, really? And that's yeah. a, it's, a double, it's a double book it's, in a huge it's, kind of it's a two presentation books, case? Exactly, two books in a box. It's one, it's at one 728 pages, 780,000 words. Um, thank you, whoever said that. Thank you very much indeed. It certainly is. It's, a, well, it's, it's extraordinary. It's a, it's a story that needs to be written, because it, it's, you know... Richard was up here telling the stiff story. That is, you know, I've just bought that book. I'm, I, no doubt it's going to be a really great read. Uh, I bought early stiff records. That was, in a way, more my period than the Beatles period in terms of how old I was in the 70s. Um, but the Beatles story is the story to end all stories in rock music. It's, it's, it's not quite the beginning of it because Elvis and co. came first. Um, but, but certainly it's, it's, they changed everything. And every rock band who's, who's picked up a guitar since 1963 is doing it because of the Beatles, whether they know it or not. And it also happens to be the very best story. I mean, just extraordinary people yeah. doing extraordinary things all the time. And if, you, if I was to cut the pagination down to, say, the mere 1500, uh, I would have had to have cut out some fantastic stuff. So I thought, no, this is the book where you don't cut the corners. Can I just ask, you know, were there any, for you, major revelations in all that research when you wrote that first uh, volume? Were there really striking things about the Beatles that you didn't know and have informed your understanding of them? Yeah, they come... I mean, there'll be millions, I'm sure. They come come from the detail. You know, I I love detail and um, I love research. And detail can bog down a book if you don't use it properly or, or it can lift it if you use it well. 
And um, because I wasn't there, I can't actually, you know, recount what happened on a given night. But if I find a photograph, a handwritten account, the advertisement, you know, whatever it might be, a nice quote or two to go with it and piece them all together for the first time, then that tells a story. And you get a lot of stories throughout the book. I mean, there's, I'm picking one at random here, but there's the night Brian Epstein mentions it in his autobiography um, when Paul McCartney said he wasn't coming. He, you know, I'm, I'm not going to play. You can all go off and play. I'm not coming. They wait outside his house in which, which year was this again? This is February 1962. Brian Epstein the, is their new manager. They've got a tour of Scotland or something, isn't it? Is this tour of Scotland? No, this is in Liverpool. Oh, right, right. Uh, Brian Epstein is their manager. He's trying to get them more prestigious dates. He's trying to get them a recording contract. They need, not exactly to do what they're told, but certainly they need to turn up for the gigs. He's arranging them. And Paul one night decides he's not effing coming. And, um, and I, I really pieced that one together from so many different sources. They were actually going to play a gig for Liverpool University that night, and I even found a piece in the Liverpool University's tra- uh, student newspaper that said, you know, that they didn't turn up and all the girls went home disappointed. And um, when you really put that together, you get a great insight there into, you know, what it was like on a given night when they're just a, a, a gigging band uh, around Liverpool and Brian Epstein saying to them, if you do that again, I'm not going to be your manager anymore because, you know, I'm pulling my weight here. You've got to pull yours too. And uh, But, you know, those are the things that are real. They're, you know, the Beatles weren't a myth. I couldn't agree more. Because it's agonising. There's lots of moments where, when you yeah. think it's all falling apart. McCartney yes. left the group at one yeah. point. There's a, part, there's a wonderful bit where you describe Richie, as Ringo was then, yeah. he would have been 16, I suppose, and McCartney would have been 14, and they go to a fair, and they're on the same dodgems, both yeah. trying to pick up girls. And you want to reach into the book and, and introduce them to each other. You say, yeah. for God's sake, you don't meet, you don't meet, there won't be a White Album. Yeah. You know? And you get uh, so panicked, you know. Uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Can't wait for it to speed yeah. up. You know? Yeah, uh, that, that's, that was a nice one because, um, you see, for every single incident or anecdote in the Beatles history, I have to apply a date to it, either as precisely as possible using deep research or the very best knowledge I can apply with, you know, to be in the right ballpark. And I had this lovely anecdote that Paul, Paul often tells an anecdote of um, the recuperative power of rock and roll. So when he went to this fun fair at the age of almost 15... Uh, and he goes to the fun fair, and um, there's Charlie Grace's. Uh, what's Charlie Grace's big hit in that day? In those days, oh, it'll come back to yeah, me in a minute. Dave. Yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll come back to me in a fabulous Charlie Grace's fabulous, which was on Parlophone. And um, he heard it playing at the fun fair because you would always hear records at the fun fair, wouldn't you? Yeah, oh, you would. Yeah, and um, they they were they went. He and his mate Ian went there in the hope of pulling a girl or two, and pulled nothing at all. Um, so they went back disappointed. But at that very moment, just by the side of the fair, in the long grass, because it's in Sefton <laughs> Park, Ringo is having his first shag. <laughs> well, uh, no, I, I don't know who she was. I would have done if I'd known. In the place she well, yes. If you remember having sexual congress yes. with Ringo no, I, I did find the ad for the fair, so I knew exactly where it was, the fair, and when it was. So that places it... because. On his way home that day, Paul bought, or Paul's friend Ian bought, I think it was blue suede shoes. And they went back to Ian's house and they were feeling blue because they hadn't had any success at the fair. They put on Elvis. They love it. They put it on again. They love it. They put it on again. By the end of the day, they know it. 
And that is the beauty of, of, you know, the passion for the music. And one of the things about this book is I wanted to remind people the Beatles are musicians. They're not myths, they're musicians. They love this music. They did this because they loved it, like, like most musicians do. So, moving on to the, the second volume, which you're thinking about now and researching yeah. for, yeah. you got an idea when that starts and when that finishes? Well, it starts the day after Volume 1 finishes, which is New Year's Day 63. Makes sense. They're flying back from Hamburg. They've, they've done with Hamburg now. They've been there five times. The last couple of times they didn't want to go. They told Brian they weren't effing going. Um, they didn't say effing, by the way. Um, <laughs> And, but, but Brian says, you've got to go, so they go, but they're not going to go anymore, and Brian doesn't want them to go anymore either. Please Please Me is about to come out, and there is a huge, genuinely huge groundswell of, of, a, of movement, if you like, that, that this is going to be big. Um, on the 13th of January, 12 days into the book, they go to Birmingham, do Thank You Lucky Stars. They meet Andrew Lou Goldham, who becomes their publicist, and, you know, he gets some, some good PR and Please Please Me comes out and it's number one. So volume one begins with them being very big very quickly and it just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And it takes in America and the whole world and films and probably will go up through 66. Oh, right. May go into 67, I don't know, but it'll go up. It'll certainly include Revolver. And the end of touring, and I'm, I don't quite, do don't quite know. Do you, I'm going to say, do you anticipate it being harder to work out the truth in that period when it's all over the papers and the television and everything? Whereas mm. in the earlier volume, you're dealing with people in Liverpool yeah. who remember that one experience, that one night. Yeah, probably um, more clearly. Do they? It's it's the usual combination for me of things I have to really. You know, things I really have to test. I, I, I put every anecdote that I get to kind of rigorous testing because I won't oh, use it. Oh, what a it. drag. That must be, how, how <laughs> must be that? heartbreaking. That how do you do that? How do I do that? Just by seeing how it fits into the picture. And if it doesn't fit in, if, if it can't be backed up with a document, um, if there isn't a photograph, if I know they were somewhere else that day, you know, I won't just take everything at face value. I will actually check everything. And not so, use something if I believe, if I don't have faith in it, no matter how exciting an anecdote it might be. But at least you're going to be. people, as Dave was saying, whose memory of it is going to be much clearer than the Beatles. There's a bit in the Jules Holland anthology <clears throat> where the, the Beatles, the three surviving Beatles, are, talk, are talking about meeting Elvis Presley. And that, for them, is their equivalent of people meeting the Beatles. Yeah. How could they possibly forget any information? And they're all asked to describe Priscilla, and all of them describe her in a completely different sense. Yeah. Different clothes. Well, actually, yeah. she says she wasn't there. Yeah. Well, think, well that's, you know, it's incredible. This is during the age of, 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 of recording and film. Yes. Isn't it astonishing that we know anything at all that's accurate about, say, Henry VIII? You know, it's, it's amazing, really. The best thing to do with that, incident, that particular incident is to go to what they all said about it the next day, because they were on tour at that oh. time, and they were doing loads of interviews every day, and I've got... I think all of them. Uh, and they all talked about it when it was really fresh, and I'll use that. And so have the other people who were there, you know, the, the Tony Barrow, the publicist, and Alf Bicknell, the driver. And yeah. They used to go on tour with a retinue of, like, four people. <laughs> you know, absolutely fantastic. How they, they go to America with, you know, the Beatles and four others. Yeah, you know, that was it. No, and no, no, no heavy guys at all, none. Is there anybody you'd like to talk to that you haven't been able to talk to? Um... Oh, gosh. Um, 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 yeah. Uh, um, no one instantly spring into mind, as you can right. tell. Okay. Um, Who have you talked to that you, you've just been impressed by that, uh, that we're going to encounter in, in volume two? I mean, of the, of the kind of cast of thousands. 
if you can reveal. Yeah, it's not so much a, a question of revealing it, it's just detail. I'll give you an example. This is not exactly answering your question. But in 1966, one of the hot London nightclubs in Swing in London uh, was a club called Sibylla's. Uh, it was on uh, Swallow Street, just at the bottom of Regent Street. Um, one of those places that's always a club. It had been a club forever and it's still a club to this day, but for a while it was Sibylla's. Uh, and part financed and therefore part owned by George Harrison. Um, and he was there for its opening night, and I've got a couple of anecdotes or proof of him being there, a couple of other nights. I've also got a stack of um, bills that he was given for you know, his bar bill, basically, at the end of a night, and he resented having to pay his bar bill. I own this club, what am I buying drinks for? I should be getting them for nothing. I think it was probably part of the attraction of running the club. So he, the reality is he hardly went there. Well, I want to know that story. So I've, tra- I've now tracked down three of the people who ran Sibylla's. And I interviewed one the other day, and I've got two coming up, I hope. Um, and that's just, you know, that's a tiny little it's bit of the book, really. But, but, but I need to know. And what, also, what are those people doing now? How have you found them? Uh, well, the guy who um, who actually designed the club was a guy called David Millinarik, who was oh, right. uh, he still is a, a, a really top flight uh, interior designer, um, and he designed all the stuff at Apple. The interior of Three Savile Row appears to be his work as well. So he's one of those people who, if I interview him, I'll get stories on all sorts of elements of the story. Um, then uh, I don't exactly know. Uh, the guy I interviewed the other day is retired, but the one I haven't spoken, the other two I haven't spoken to yet, I'm not sure. Right, right. But people are generally they're quite happy to talk about the Beatles. There. Some are and some aren't. Some have really had enough of it. Um, like and, who? What, what sort of people? Just people who asked all the time. Yeah, um, the, the one who denied me for Volume One, and I think is denying me for Volume Two, is John's mate Pete Shotton, oh, yeah. who um, not only was at school with John and was in John's. <laughs> tear away gang in the 1950s um, but also uh, went on to manage the Apple shop on Baker Street uh, and he'd be a great person to interview but I have spoken to a few other people who were at the Apple shop all the stories that are, are, are kind of too, are told too pat in all the books like the, the business with the Maharishi going off to India and running the Apple shop Magic Alex and the Apple Electronics who I'm hoping to interview um, all these stories, they're kind of... Um, the way they've been told has never borne any relation to the truth. And, the, and because the actual people concerned have never really said anything and most writers want to peddle the familiar <laughs> story, it ends up being very far from what actually happened. I think the Apple shop on Baker Street was actually a, quite a triumphant idea for the Beatles. And I love the fact that they closed it so quickly um, because it was just like it wasn't working or it wasn't quite what they wanted to do, so they closed it. Have you had any reaction from, from the Beatles, from Paul and, uh, and Ringo? No, none at all. And, I, mean, uh, I can't imagine they're in a tearing rush to read another book about themselves, well, particularly one that's 820 pages yeah, long, but that's uh, for us. You know. it's, 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 but so, it would be interesting if there was a reaction. There's so many dimensions to this answer. I mean, first of all, I used to work for them, and I worked for them because they knew I was good at what I did, and that's why they employed me. They don't employ someone who can't do the job. So they know I can do the job and they, they know that I've got integrity and all that kind of stuff. But I fall into the wall of being a Beatles book author and my God, there are a few of us around. Uh, and they took an attitude about Beatles books back in about 1965, 66, much earlier than we'd think. Um, and they can't deal with it. They can't face it. They just keep them all at arm's length and it's just like, oh, another one, you know. 
Um, so the fact that this is, you know, up to, depending on which edition, 1,700 pages would not impress them. Um, what might impress them is word of mouth, but I don't know whether it's reached them. I genuinely don't. I had an offer from Paul to do some work for him just after the first volume came out, um, which may indicate that he'd seen it, but uh, he didn't actually say whether he you had or not. sort of understand that, but there was a wonderful quote from uh, McCartney about four or five years ago when he described <clears throat> being in the Beatles like going to the moon. So just only four of us went to the moon. Yeah. Only four of us will ever know what being on the moon was like. Yeah. And I thought that was a really good point, actually. I felt well, like it sympathy is, for it. It is a great point. But, you know, if, if he's talking of a writer who's trying to insert himself into that, into that moon vessel, into that, into that spacecraft, then, yeah, be aware. But I'm not. Um, and quite often there was somebody else on the trip to the moon with them. Um, there's a good story in the book of when um, one of the Beatles' early, quite well-known gigs is when they played Peterborough on a gig with Fra- uh, a bill with Frank Ifield. Um, and this was a kind of a tryout with the tour promoter Arthur Howes. I don't mm. remember, remember Arthur Howes. Oh, yes. um, and they reputedly went down like a lead balloon. But in fact, they, it was, they, they did all right and they, they did pass the audition. Um, but in the van on the way down, there was a guy with them called Bernie, Bernie Boyle, who was... Um, this young kid who used to help carry their amps in, you know, because they always needed help. And uh, they used to let him come along. And he was in the van with them, and he told me all about it. And it was wonderful anecdotes about the journey down. Because um, Frank Ifield was going out with a girl who Paul McCartney was going out with. This, this girl, Iris, was two-timing McCartney with Frank Ifield. Or two-timing Frank Ifield with Paul Two-timing McCartney. McCartney. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, it happened in 62. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't have happened much after that. Uh, uh, we've got a picture here, or we've got a series of pictures. I found this on the internet. <laughs> the internet? What's that? It's it's a it's a montage of of pictures that are either from the Abbey Road session, yeah. or purport to be the Abbey Road session. Yes. And I thought, while we got you here, Aye. you could just tell us what there is to know about the Abbey Road photo session. Which you know, if you were to go out by Abbey Road tonight, there would be young tourists who weren't even born when the Beatles were together, you know, risking life and limb to have their pictures taken going across that, that zebra. What, what was the idea in the first place? Um, according to Jeff Emmerich, who was the engineer on the album, they were thinking of calling it Everest because he used to smoke cigarettes, which were a brand called Everest. And Paul McCartney picked him up in the control room one day and said, hmm, not a bad title for an album. But I don't think it stuck. And it came to the point where the album was finished and they didn't have a title. Um, There's no documentation that I've been able to find so far. I do look for documents always. And I have, for volume two, we talk briefly about um, people I'm seeing. But for volume two, I have phenomenal file access. And those papers, oh, every single one of them tells a new story. Um, With regard to the Abbey Road cover, I've not found any indication that they had had this title any more than a day or two beforehand. So I think it came quite late, and they they probably just said, let's go outside the studio and have our picture taken. Uh, And Ian McMillan, who took it, who I did interview, but he's dead now, uh, he took these pictures on a stepladder, standing in, um, perched on a ladder up in Abbey Road, looking up towards West End Lane, towards West Hampstead. And um, they took six. He took six pictures. Six other. Uh, this one and five others. This is very clearly the best of the of the six. So they used it. Um, the other five are slightly different colour, which is a bit strange. 
Um, they look not too bad here, but if you actually look at the, the prints, there are, it, it was tweaked somehow or other. Um, but also there that day was Linda, because Paul had married Linda. She was pregnant with Mary. She was quite close to dropping, actually. Mary's born about 10 days later, wasn't she? Um, Mary was right? born at the end of August 69. Yes, yeah. yes, that's right. And this is the 8th. And, so. and she weighed? <laughs> yes. Um, yes, she did weigh. Yes, she did. Um, I think they carried that weight. Um, Here all week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so she was there as well. And, of course, she usually had carried her camera around. So she took these other oh, pictures. Oh, I see. Right, so the These other ones, ones sitting on the step when they're waiting for Ian to get the camera set up. They're just sitting there on the stairs, on the steps of Abbey Road. Um, not quite the last pictures of the Beatles together, but the last pictures were only taken 14 days later. Um, so otherwise, yeah, the, they're all Lindas except for that one, which is a computer recreation. Oh, right. So that very is... clever, but not actually a photograph. Okay. And these, and these here are the, uh, you know, the ladies watching. Are those Lindas pictures as well? Yeah, they're Lindas pictures as well. Right, right. Um, so it's it's really great to have. They're like outtakes because Ian Ian only took the six, but she took all the ones of them lining up and getting ready and. There's one, I think it might be here, of a woman kind of brushing something off John's coat or jacket or something yes. like that. Yeah, I don't know if it's here. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if you've seen, there's been various uh, things on the internet re- recently reworkings of this picture where two of them are carrying the other two on their shoulders. No, I haven't seen no, that. There's just there's millions of spoofs, which are just... <laughs> which it is amazing because... It is the most conceptual album cover of all, mm. and yet it was completely done off the top of their heads. Well, more conceptual than Pepper, would you say? Well, it's, it's, more, all right, it's more spoofed and it's more yeah. thought about, yeah, and it's um, because it exists in the real world. So yeah. every tourist who comes to London goes there. There's yeah. a chap in America called Ken Orth who makes it his job, just as a hobby, to um, look for any advertisements or album covers that, that are parodies of or influenced by the Beatles album covers, starting with Please Please Me and ending with Let It Be, and he, he exhibits them. And it's really just amazing to see how many artists have, have, have been inspired or, or simply parodied their covers. I can remember a, the a room, news. Room, a whole room full of stuff. I can remember at school the, the news when Paul McCartney died. Everyone remember when Paul McCartney died, <laughs> and uh, there was this uh, rumor that he died. In fact, some, some reporter was sent off to the Mull of Kintyre, were they, to try and he had to say rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Yeah, but I can remember that that Volkswagen on the left is a white Volkswagen, and the, and the number mm. plate is if twenty eight, and that was the that was the proof. If he would have, was still alive, he would be twenty eight yeah, years old. Um, and we thought, right? Yes, X. yes. Although, so although it's true. But with all dead. these things, it's, it's one of those situations where you find the answers to fit the question because then someone pointed out actually had Paul not died at this point he would have been 27 and then somebody else piped up and said oh yes but everyone is already one when they're born in some you know Tibetan whatever this way madness lies yeah 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 (laughs) I mean you're looking for the answers to fit something that was never true in the first place so obviously you get all sorts of weird things do you think interest in the Beatles has peaked um, maybe so, yeah. I would say it may have peaked. It's hard to know when that peak was, really. Uh, I mean, the original peak, I was I was up at the British Library today reading Variety from 1964. My God, was it big then. Oh, yes. Absolutely incredible. Selling a whole, selling a million albums before the thing was even released. I mean, can you imagine that? In 2014, it's 50 years ago, mine. Um, that was big. 
Um, and then we've had a few big times since then. I think John Lennon's death obviously was a great accelerator in, in, in renewing their popularity. Um, but although it's true to say, and it is extraordinary all the same, that young people, kids are loving the Beatles music, I mean, that is something to stop and think about. Um, obviously, they can't be in the same numbers that they used to be, and therefore, naturally, there has to be a natural falling off as we all get older and go. So I think the Beatles will always be popular, but uh, it's hard to imagine they will be this popular still. But, hey, it's 50 years ago, and they are still huge. <laughs> it is quite yeah. mm. remarkable. Mm. Do you think we've got time for a couple of questions from yeah, cool. I was going to say, I wonder if anyone had any... Questions. We, I was, we were at a, a Mark and uh, Martin, who are coming up in a minute, and, uh, and I were at a, a LAN festival earlier in the year watching David Quantic interviewing Mark superbly. And at the end of this thing, David said, I've just got one more question. He said, Mark, and it just talked you know, in passionate detail about the Beatles for an hour. He said, one more question, Beatles or Stones? Uh, it's, a, it's an old, it's an old uh, music press cag from the 1970s. But are there any questions? Did somebody had the hand up there, yeah. Um, how do you keep everything in your head? Where am I looking here? Oh, there, oh, there you are. Hello. Um, how do I keep everything in my head? Um, passion, really. Um, allied to just, uh, just... It's just something I can do. It's hard to explain the things you can do naturally. Um, it, I, I could reel off a very long list of things I can't do. Um, DIY and anything practical and anything like that. But from infancy onwards, and really infancy, three or four years old, I used to spend my time in the reference section at the public library, looking things up. And those talents that I, I, I had then, I mean, I, no one told me how to do that or, or even where to look, but I just knew, and I still do. And that's, it's just something I can apply to this job, you know? So... So it, it just goes in and stays there. I don't recall absolutely everything, but uh, it may appear that I do, but I don't. But I do recall a lot. Didn't know Mary's birth weight, did he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm taking my copy back Over tomorrow. There, Andy, yes. <laughs> Over. If you pass that Actually, microphone be, along... It would be scary if I knew it. Thank you so much. I mean, I wouldn't want to be scary. Uh, I speak as a purchaser of your book, not once but twice. Thank you. Uh, I bought, bought it a year ago, and I loved it so much that I gave a copy to David Gilmore with his permission. So at least he has it. He, he might not have read it, but at least he has it. Um, but written on the spine, there is, a, there is a subtitle. And you've got tune in, presumably, followed by, uh, you know, turn on and drop out. Uh, but also on the spine, there's, there's what might be a rubric that is joined up in the next two editions. Is yes. that the case? Yes. And uh, can you reveal what, it, what they might be? Well, <laughs> yes, it's quite simple, really. It's all... A double L all because the book all these years is the title of the series. So I've written across. I mean, if you eventually get all three and put them on a shelf, you will read across all these years, and that, that's all it is. It's all. It looks a bit like AU, but that's my handwriting. And how long has Andy got to wait until he can look at that? Uh, Fourteen on, years. Book shelf? Be able to put all three and how on does the Andy, shelf? how's Andy looking? Oh, he's looking all right. Oh, he looks yeah. fine to me. Yes. I mean, thank got... you for buying two, and thank you for giving one to David Gilmore. Any, uh, any further questions? Over this gentleman over here, I don't know if we can get a mic over there. Terry, thank you very much. Yeah. Hi, Mark. Yeah, I loved your book. I thought there was something new on every page, and I've read millions of Beatles books. So Thank you. you know. uh, I, was, I was curious, um, probably like a lot of Beatles fans, about the whole thing about Pete Best. Do you, do you think the Pete Best thing was about personality or about musicianship, ultimately? Uh, it was both. 
It was definitely both, um, but primarily it was about musicality. Um, it, it's not what it's not what I think that counts. It's what they thought that counts. And John Paul and George always knew that Pete was not the guy that they wanted in the group. Um, when they initially, uh, Paul McCartney was the drummer for a while, and in that period, he really wanted to get off drums and go back front stage, especially as he just got a new guitar and HP. So, um, and it was really painful to be playing drums. Um, but even then, they didn't go to Pete, though they knew he had a kit and he was doing nothing. Um, they really only went for him when they had to go for him because without him they couldn't have gone to Hamburg. So they got him, but as soon as they got there, they found that he was a beginner. Um, and they managed to find ways of playing that he could keep the beat to. But And also played at Hamburg a couple of nights with Ringo, didn't they? Which is, yeah, they played with is, Ringo. Which cemented his... They, didn't, they knew Ringo in Hamburg, they didn't play with him, but they did play with him in Liverpool. And, and every time, you know, anyone who's in this room who's been in a band will know that when the chemistry is not right, it's just not right. You know, there's something missing. But when the chemistry is right and you're really swinging, then, then this is the guy you want. And they wanted Pete out. And the trouble was they took two years to do it, which made it much, much harder when they actually did do it. Uh, and they were, they were cowardly, really, and they got Brian Epstein to do it for them. But it was complicated by then. They had contracts, and it took, it took two... Well, he was in the group two years almost to the day. Um, and, of course, by the point that they kick him out, they're so close to getting their record out that he knows that they're about to be big. And they were. They were going to be big. Um, he knows that um, it's all going to happen very, very soon without him. And poor guy had to sit and watch it all happen. I will be continuing the Pete Best story in volumes two and three. <laughs> because he, you know, how, how a man deals with that yeah, is actually yeah. a, part, a very compelling thing for a biography. You know, you can't just switch, off, switch him off like a tap. You know? Well, it's one of the reasons, isn't it, that when they did anthology with the old stuff, so he got paid, didn't he? Actually, that was my idea. It, was, it wasn't my idea to pay him, but, I mean, everyone was getting paid, so that was kind of a corollary of it. Um, I, I did the albums. I helped George Martin put them together, and I suggested that we have the Polydor tracks on and the Beatles' Decca test tracks on, uh, and there were a couple of tracks from the EMI session that Pete played on, so ultimately I think he's on ten. Um, and ten tracks of the biggest al- selling album of the, that year. Of that year, and because he was on ten, um, he got a really good whack, yeah. Yeah, so, um, although I, I think he still lives in the same little house in Liverpool, as far as I know, that he always did live in. Uh, I don't know that he really, I don't know what he did with the money, and it's not my business, but it's interesting that he didn't go and buy a mansion with it. He's, no, still, no. he's still the same unaffected guy that he always was. I like Pete, I've always liked Pete. Well, look, as, as you say, it is, it is the greatest story, and it's a story that, oddly enough, keeps on growing, Thanks to your, uh, you know, your loving attention. Would you please thank Mark Lewison. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by The Word.